All right, church family, let's open up to uh, 1 Samuel 17. Uh, and as you're finding your, your place there, remind you of, of two things, or just say two things. Number one, we are going to take the Lord's Supper uh, towards the end of the service. And traditionally, after the end of the Lord's Supper, on the days that we do that, uh, we take up a benevolence offering that goes to help um, our community ministries and just benevolence compassion ministries. And so we'll have some guys at the doors as you walk out. And uh, as you give, just give generously above and beyond. Uh, we're always thankful for that. But it helps us just immediately uh, to be able to help some of our folks uh, in need here in our city. Uh, second thing I'll just say to you as you find your place there, um, uh, we had a great week at camp. Uh, one of the most, one of the sweeter camps that I've been to, one of the most diverse group of kids uh, that I've ever been a part of in 17 years. Uh, and uh, so I know many of us are uh, in recovery from this past week. So if you see me uh, rubbing my belly this morning, it's not because I'm hungry, it's because I have chiggers all over me, all right? And uh, my wife's telling me to stop itching them. The more you itch them, the worse they get, but you can't help but itch them if you've got them, right? If you've ever had them before, like they just don't go away. And so if I'm holding my stomach, it's not because I'm hungry and I'm not trying to, to give you a subliminal message uh, in some way. My, my stomach just itches, okay? All right. Uh, listen, I, um, 17 years old, I uh, came to faith in Christ. And I didn't come to faith in Christ because I went to a cool youth camp or I had a cool youth speaker. Uh, I didn't come to Christ for, for any gimmicks, any really programs. I came to Christ because I was caught in sort of this crisis of faith or identity in my own life. And the first time that I heard the gospel message really just take root within my life, I was infatuated by the idea that the gospel was about God inviting me into his kingdom rather than me inviting God into mine. And it was this shift in my mind that I'd never heard before that to follow Christ doesn't mean that I'm putting Christ uh, in a box and that I get to take him wherever it is that I want, but rather it's about Jesus and him sort of defining my reality and what I was supposed to do. And it wasn't me putting him in a box, but rather him saying, hey, Drew, come on, you're going to be a part of my bigger story and I'm going to weave you into my larger kingdom because it is much bigger then your 17-year-old mind can fathom, and I promise you it is much grander. Because it's a story that, that God is writing about himself. And we just happen to be caught up in it. God in his mercy and his goodness, he brings us along, uh, if you will, for the ride. And we get to be a part of that. Somewhere along the line, preachers and teachers and, and ministers and, and well-meaning people uh, from time to time will take stories of the Bible that are meant to be exclusively aligned about God and what God had done and in an attempt to, to make it more applicable to people or even relevant, if you will, they begin to sort of change the meaning of the story to be less about God and really more about you as a person or an individual. No more story in the Old Testament does this or have I heard this done throughout Christendom than the story of David and Goliath. And it's a story that all of us have heard at some point. Maybe many of us are deeply familiar with, but, but I want to sort of make sure that with this familiar story that we make sure that we get some things right because I think many churches and even things that I've listened to and watched over the past couple of weeks and even over the years, hearing preachers and teachers talk about David and Goliath, they constantly and pretty regularly seem to miss it. Years ago, there was a, a famous preacher here in the Metroplex that was famous for making a statement, uh, and I'm not going to quote him, but I'm going to say something similar to that, and before you quote tweet me uh, for not citing a source, let me just say this. This was said hundreds of years before this guy ever said it, and it blew up. 
And here's what he said. In the story of David and Goliath, that most of Christianity throughout the years has understood this to be fact. In that story, you are not David. You're not David. You're not meant to be David. You're not meant to be David and pick up your five smooth stones and go slay giants. That's not the point of David and Goliath. You're not meant to identify with that. Because you see, the truth is, someone greater than David already came and he slayed the giant and God does not need you to slay one giant today. David is a picture He's a type of Christ that eventually comes and we see the fulfillment of of ultimately Jesus, David being David, a real person, but pointing ultimately to Christ. And we are not meant to read into this story and say that we are David and God has equipped us with five smooth stones. Now let's go slay the giants. I heard one well-meaning pastor just a few months ago. He said, God needs to raise up more Davids to go slay giants on a national platform. I did the best pastoral thing I could do. I just went, (laughs) brother, you're not meant to be David. And the reason why that's wrong is because that gets the attention back on you. And it focuses on you being able to do something that God has not really called you to do because God in his mercy and in his goodness, he's already won and he's already defeated it. And so I want to turn our attention to chapter 17 as we continue along in this series, sort of setting the stage. And we begin in verse 1 where the text reads as follows. He says, listen, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Done. So we're familiar with this story up until this point. If you've been tracking with us throughout this book series, uh, the people of God, the Israelites, are in constant opposition, whether it be the Amalekites or the Canaanites. In this moment, it's the Philistines. And they're constantly being warred upon. But in this particular instance, it's a little bit different because there was not a worse group of people than the Philistines in this moment. This was a group of people who had children and procreated primarily for the purpose of waging war on their neighbors and the people that they lived next to. They grew up in this time frame, or at least when we find this story, where they grew up in what was known historically as the Iron Age. You see, the Philistines were the very first groups of people They began to take metals and bronze and they began to forge them into weapons of war and began to create armor. They were game changers when it came to military technology. They were at the forefront of all those things. These men and these women knew death and destruction and they knew how to wage it on whoever it would be. They also happened to be in control of three of the major cities at the time that controlled the industry and the trade and the technology. Like the Philistines were the big kid on the block. And so the text says that at this time, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were going after God's people, the Israelites. I want to pick up in verse 4 of chapter 17. And he says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, when you see that word champion that exists there in that verse, this just means that it wasn't like Goliath won the latest episode of American Ninja Warrior. And he's this guy. This was a, this was a guru that was basically born and bred for the purpose of murdering and killing people and winning battles for his people. He was trained and skilled, and there wasn't anyone better at him than death and destruction than Goliath. 
Now, in some translations, you'll see a, a different rendering of when it says and describes his height, some would contend that in the scriptures, there's what's known as this scribal error where the writer who was writing and copying the text, that he flipped the words back and forth. And there are some that would say that that literally means in the cubits and the measurements that Goliath was nine feet and six inches tall. Now, some would say that would really criticize Scripture would say, no, listen, you have this, what's known as this variant, and it doesn't read nine foot six inches tall, but rather six feet nine inches tall. And whatever the meaning of that word and however it ultimately places within there, the idea here is that Goliath was a large man. Could have descended from the, from, the, from the Amalekites or Anak or could have been one of the Nephilim in, in Genesis 6. But he was a large man, whether he was nine feet tall or whether he was six feet tall. And that comes into play in just a moment as the story begins to unfold. We're meant to begin this process of contrasting who it is that ultimately defeats Goliath. Now I want you to notice in verse 5 these descriptors of Goliath. And I realize it's hard to visualize this, but I'm going to read through these for a reason because when we get to David, we begin to, to see the contrast that exists there. So this man, Goliath, in verse 5, had a helmet of bronze on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and he had a javelin, a bronze slug between, uh, slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. This is a huge spear. And his shield bearer went before him. And he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Therefore, choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. Choose a man to fight me, and let's end this right now. Now, if you remember from several weeks ago when Saul was anointed king, we saw the author of the text make a couple of key descriptors about Saul. That he described Saul as being a military leader that was tall and that he was mighty. And Saul was going to be the man that protected God's people and that he provided, militarily speaking, uh, what they weren't trusting in God to do anymore. And so he's meant to be a tall figure in the midst of a bunch of really short people. And so here we have this moment where Goliath is out there, whether he's six feet tall or whether he's nine feet tall. But notice in verse 11 what Saul is doing in this moment. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, he says they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. In other words, day by day, Goliath calls them out. And day by day, Saul, amongst all of his people, is afraid and he's dismayed. And that fear and being dismayed rubs off on his people. And his people begin to mimic the behavior of the leader. Well, this tells us something spiritually speaking. It tells us something about leadership in general, not just spiritually speaking, but applies to all things. And in particular, in the case of a church or even an organization, is that a church will reflect the spiritual condition of its leader. A class, a community group will reflect the spiritual condition of its leader within any organization, any business, any school. You will reflect the attitude, the heart condition, the level of whoever it is, the person that you're following. Eventually, and over time, you begin to sort of rub off literally in ways in which your spiritual condition will affect those that you serve. Your leadership ability 
will affect those that serve underneath you. And all the while, Saul is here and he's afraid and he's dismayed. It reminds me of Proverbs 28.1, which speaks to the opposite of this. And he says, the righteous are as bold as a lion. We've not seen any righteousness exist in Saul's life. In fact, the spirit of the Lord has departed him and he is tormented and he is afflicted by a spirit. God has left Saul and there is no righteousness in him whatsoever. We pick up in verse 13 and we see that these older sons of David had followed Saul into battle. But then if you get to verse 12, and and later on it says here that David was the youngest and the three oldest followed Saul. But verse 15 says, but David goes back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. 20 years old was the requirement to be in the military. So if you wanted to serve at this moment, it wasn't 18, it was 20 according to Numbers 1, 3 and, and verse 20. But notice what happens for 40 days according to verse 16. For 40 days or six weeks, The Philistine, Goliath, came forward and he took his stand morning and evening and he repeats the same words over and over and over again for 40 days in the morning and in the evening. Who amongst you will fight me? Who amongst you will will challenge me? He wakes up in the morning, the sun comes up, he approaches them, no one comes. He goes back to his, behind his line, he comes back in the evening, who amongst you will challenge me? Who amongst you will fight me? And let's put an end to this. And nobody challenges him for 40 days, for six weeks, morning and night, over and over and over again. And the terror and the dismayed feeling just continues to grow in the people of God. He takes his stand. In verse 17 and 18, David's dad comes to him and he says, listen, go bring the food to to your brothers who were fighting with Saul. And go do what you've been doing. You've been tending the sheep. Now go give them some provisions and and go, go give to them. And so verse 20, we pick up and he says, and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper. And he took the provisions that the father said that Jesse had commanded and he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle shouting the war cry. Verse 23. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and he spoke the same words as before, but this time David hears him. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and they were much afraid. Same, same story, just a different day. They were fearful. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man to David who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. But here's the irony of of this little conversation that takes place as David walks into camp and these men saying that that God is going to honor and the king will honor and and that he defies the the living God. There's this irony that exists there in the midst of the text that James echoes in the New Testament. And it's really this one of, of what we say needs to be matched by our actions. In other words, in this moment, our faith doesn't solely rely on just words, but on the action of our beliefs. You can say you believe something, but if there's no action taken to to verify and and even to prove in your own mind, not so much to others, but, but faith is something that propels us to move forward in a tangible way that we can see and that others can see and that most importantly, God can see. And so it leads us to action because of our belief in this moment. These men demonstrated zero action. 
verse 26, it says, And David said to the men who stood by him, Well, what shall be done to the man who kills this man? But notice how David ends. Not just kill the Philistine, but take away the reproach from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised, unclean Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Notice in verse 28 what happens as David speaks. We see his older brother Eliab come forth when he hears him and it says that his anger was kindled against David. To be honest with you, the first time I read that last week and this week, I thought, what a lousy punk of a brother. Like here comes this little bitty uh, ruddy young boy who's been anointed king and Eliab knows this, that he's, he is the one that has been chosen to secede, uh, to follow in, in Saul's footsteps. And so he comes and he's asking these questions and all Eliab does is question his motivation. And it reminds me of a truth sometimes that we can experience in church life and even in our, even in our home life or even in your organization, in your business, that, that oftentimes the harshest critics are those that come from within your family. They're sometimes the, the ones that come within your church family or within your organization, and you would say, we're supposed to be on the same team, same vision, same mission, but here we are sort of fighting and contending against each other, and we're reading into motivations. And so Eliab just isn't having it, and it says his anger was kindled against David, displaying his bitterness over God's blessing over someone else. And so this interchange takes, goes back and forth, and Saul gets brought in onto the scene in verses 31 and 32, and, and Saul just really can't believe who is this guy, and, and where has he come from, and, and this is the guy that is, that is going to fight, and David says, let me be the one, and, and then verse 34, we pick up, and it says, but David says to Saul, your servant, and Saul questions his ability, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I was the one who struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. Notice he never got help from his older brothers. He never got help from his dad. He was the one that took care of business. Your servant, verse 36, has struck down both lions and bears. And listen to this. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of those. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Like finally, somebody comes into this scene and is not just worried about his own honor or, or his reputation or what other people perceive of him, but, but he is fighting and he is contending for the Lord. These men who are out here, they're not just defying us as people. They are defying the God that we serve faithfully, the one that delivered us from the hand of the Egyptians, the one that provided for us and delivered the ark and returned it, who has given us provision after provision after provision, and he has provided for us. They are the ones that are defying this living God. And oh yeah, by the way, Saul, after I was anointed king, I didn't go to king's school to learn how to be a king. I went back to the pasture and I learned how to fight bears and lions. I learned how to grab them by the beard and, and just take care of business. This Philistine, compared to a bear, compared to a lion, compared to all the other things that I've experienced, this Philistine, especially in the eyes and in the armies of the living God, he is nothing. I will take his life and the Lord will deliver me from his hand. And so verse 38 and 39, Saul 
very naively tries to clothe David in his armor. And you remember that description of Saul being tall. And, and David was just a boy at this moment. Scholars would, would, some would argue that in this moment, David not being 20, he, he, some, one guy said David could have been as small as five foot three inches. He could have been as large as five foot six inches. So he's about as tall as Matt Getty, okay? Little guy. He wasn't a big guy. And he wasn't meant to be intimidating in any way. He wasn't meant to, to be fearful. And, and Saul starts to put his armor, this tall man, uh, on, on David here in this moment. And then David uh, makes this comment towards the end of verse 39. I can't go to battle with these. And so David takes all the armor off. And he's like, bro, I'm going with like sleeveless shirts, my sandals, no helmet, no chest plate. Like, I've got it. It's fine. I'll fight him this way. No big deal. And I think one of the things that we see in David's posture of saying no is this reminder to Christians sometimes that we need, as, as much as we are willing to say yes to challenges, there are times in which we must say no to compromise. And David in this moment was like, I'm not compromising with the armor. I'm going to go as the Lord tells me to go. And he says, no, Christian, one of the best things that you can do in your life is learning to say no to some things. Learning to say no to good things that might perhaps protect you because God hasn't called you to. Later on, we see David in, in instances where he puts on armor and he does put on armor at times. But in this moment, David says these things are not tested and so he puts them off. We must learn to say no in some instances. Verse 40 goes on. It says, then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch and his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now, I read some goofy things over the past few weeks about this part. And I dug into the Hebrew, I dug into the, the Latin version of different things and trying to find where I've seen some guys sort of make some contention about what these five smooth stones mean. And you know, after hours of study and, and contemplation and praying, you know what these five smooth stones mean? Nothing. They mean five literal smooth stones. There's nothing beyond that. They don't symbolize prayer. They don't symbolize David's heart of worship for God or his commitment to him. These are just rocks that are meant for destruction in this moment. There's nothing symbolic in it. And when you hear preachers start doing stuff like that, they are literally trying to turn over rocks to find meaning that does not exist. The most literal interpretation of the meaning of these rocks is that they are just rocks. They're weapons. They don't mean the things that oftentimes we will hear as we try to over-spiritualize a text of Scripture. They're just rocks. So he takes the rocks and he puts them in his pouch and his sling was in his hand and he begins to approach the Philistine. Now listen to this as the author describes this scene for us. It's powerful and I can't wait for Mel Gibson in Braveheart-ish type fashion to make a, a movie out of this. Like this needs to be dedicated to the television, right? So listen to this. And the Philistine, verse 41, moved forward and he comes near to, to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and he saw David and that he disdained for him, for he was but a youth, but he was ruddy. And there he was, handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed 
David, by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. Bro, come at me. 5'3", ruddy in appearance, with a slingshot, approaching a guy in full armor with a sword and a, and a staff, and he's nine, nine feet tall, or he's six feet tall, however tall he is. He stands over David, and David just simply says, I will cut off your head today, and I'm going to give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts. You will become nothing that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Like, I want that guy on my team. And see, the thing that David understands is, is that David's not approaching Goliath in his, in his own strength. He's not approaching Goliath in his, with his own mind. He's just simply approaching Goliath knowing that the Lord of all the universe is right there with him. And when you defy the living God, he will defile you. And David understands that. And David knows that. And all this assembly in verse 47 will know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And this is my favorite part of the whole thing. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose, he came and he drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line. He didn't hesitate. He didn't stop. He runs quickly to immediately meet him with bold conviction, with a degree of, of courage in which we had not seen yet in this book or in this chapter in the scriptures. And he runs to the adversity to meet the Philistine. And David puts his hand in his bag and he pulls out that stone that means prayer or worship. No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't mean any of those things. He takes out the weapon of destruction and slings it and strikes the Philistine on his forehead. Prayer. Okay, I don't think that's what happened. Worship. And he somebody just snorted. That's awesome. I don't know who did that. It's always my goal if somebody snorts. Um, he strikes him and he sinks the stone into his forehead and he falls on his face to the ground. Scholars would say he would have taken one loop and he would have swung it around a rock about two to three inches in diameter, and it would have been traveling about 100 to 150 miles per hour, and he was dead to rights and just lights him up in the forehead. David put his hand on his bag. He slings it. He falls. David prevails, verse 50, over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck him, and he kills him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and he stood over the Philistine. He took his sword and he drew it out of his sheath and he killed him. Uh, some scholars were sort of getting after each other this week as I was reading this. They're like, well, did he die from the stone or did he die when his head cut off? And I was like, it's a really simple answer to this. This is the Old Testament equivalent of the double tap, all right? When you're gonna shoot somebody, right? Uh, you double, well, not, let's walk that back a little bit. Not shoot somebody, don't shoot anybody. If you're gonna shoot an animal that's large and you wanna make sure that it's dead, what do you do? Double tap 
right? You put two in them instead of one. So we think, we're pretty sure Goliath was already dead, and this was a symbolic gesture to make sure he was dead, but also to make sure that he fulfilled, because he said, I'm going to cut your head off. And he does it, literally. He wasn't speaking metaphorically in this moment. There was no sword. And when the Philistines, into verse 51, saw that their champion was dead, they then flee. Two quick points and we're done. I said at the beginning that you, you are not meant to be David in this story. There's been too many bad teaching and bad preaching by well-meaning intended people, but you are not David in this story. Jesus, listen to me, Jesus is the one to slay the giants in your life. He is the one to defeat them. You can't conjure up with your power or with your ability or with enough wit or intellectual assent to defeat those things. And the, the reality is Christ has already won. And he has defeated sin, death, and evil. And it's because of Jesus we can now approach the giants and we can have confidence because like David we say, we stand on behalf and with the living God. And he is for us. He is with us. And so when the giant approaches, we simply find a place of, of rest and a posture of rest as we lean and as we trust into Jesus because this was the sin of the Israelites. It was their failure to trust him. It was their failure to have confidence in who God was in their time of need. He's the only one to do it. But the second thing is this, and then we're done. The size of the giant in your life is absolutely irrelevant. Whether it's a big giant or whether it's a small giant, Christ conquered all little and small, every single giant, all sin, every obstacle, the size of the giant in your life is irrelevant, but your ability to trust him is what matters. All five foot three of David, approaching a man who for 40 days, six weeks, morning and evening, the entire army of Israel, not one person would face him. And there he was with a leather strap and five stones and a little shepherd's pouch. And as soon as Goliath moves forward to the battle line, David runs quickly to him and he meets him face to face and he ends it. And just as, as quickly as it started, it ended that quick. It was over. This morning, I, I want to ask and, and acknowledge there may be some of you that have some Goliaths in your life, some sin in your life that you're messing with or dabbling with. Maybe it's unbelief. Maybe some of you are about to experience or are experiencing some kind of sickness and you're facing that and you think, man, what, what do I do about this? This is a, this is a big deal in, in my life. And, and can I just remind you that you don't have to labor, you don't have to fight, you don't have to challenge it because Jesus already did. And what we have to do is we have to find rest in that. It doesn't mean we're passive because David had to show up. David had to call upon the name of the Lord. David had to pick the rocks up. And yes, David ultimately slung them, but it was based on a promise that God had given that he would deliver them and he would honor it. And so trust and faith is not a passive posture. 
In fact, I would contend that it's almost easy to do things rather than to sit and wait upon the Lord. That's the hard part, is to wait and to trust and to ask Him for deliverance from sin, deliverance from circumstance, deliverance from conflict. Those are the hard things. Jesus is David. We're the critical brother. We're the army of Israel that set paralyzed in fear because of our sin and because of conflict. And we sat by our whole lives and we watched and waited and finally we, it was revealed to us that, that Christ had come to die for sinners, to slay the Goliaths in our lives and to deal with those things on our behalf so that we didn't have to. This is the gospel for his people today. Let's find rest in that.